Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Huss, coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thanks so much for listening. The sponsor for this episode is Centralis Wine. Centralis is an ecological winery that I started to protect or benefit the environment and my community with every business and winemaking decision. I envision a wine world in which humans are the students and servants of the non-human world, regenerating and protecting the vitality of ecosystems and promoting the diversity of life through wines that uniquely and deliciously reflect local abundance. Centralis wines feature forged prickly pears, urban perennial polyculture, wine garden produced grapes, gleanings from urban fruit trees, dry farmed century old vines, and organic and biodynamic viticulture. If this sounds interesting to you, please join our email list or wine club and learn more at centraliswine.com. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. My guest for this episode is Michael Jurgens. He's the best-selling author of Drinking and Knowing Things. He's a certified sommelier with the Guild of Master Sommeliers, a certified specialist of wine, and a Master of Wine candidate with the Institute of Masters of Wine. His final blind tasting test is this month, so good luck, Michael. He runs the wildly popular Drinking and Knowing Things wine blog, which has been adapted now into three books. He owns the award-winning SoCal Rum Company, which was recently awarded the highest point score in history for any silver rum. Michael was a professor at UC Irvine until recently, and he spends his very little free time doing blind tasting and extreme sports. And last, but absolutely not least, he is the founder of the Bhutan Wine Company and is leading the development of the wine industry in this magical Himalayan country for its first time in history. This is why I wanted to talk to Michael. Because his journey led him to Bhutan to plant its first ever vineyards, I found out about Bhutan and started looking into some of the truly unique and stunning aspects of its culture. That's part of the power of wine, to make these connections. If you haven't heard about the seven pillars of gross national happiness, or didn't know that Bhutan is the only carbon negative nation in the world, or that it's on a path to be the first 100% organic nation in the world and more, then you're going to have as much fun with this interview as I did. Enjoy. Michael, welcome. Thanks so much for doing this. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. Ah, it's going to be great, man. I'm looking forward to it. There are so many things that you do, um, which I will have just introduced you. And I, I'm, and since this is a wine podcast, I think my first question is, you know, I've noticed uh, as, I've, as I've, you know, been moved into my later 40s that Drinking wine does not equate with the level of energy that you seem to display in your life. What is your secret? Like, <laughs> what? How are you optimizing your time and energy, and still drinking wine and taste? You know, basically preparing for. I, I think you're still preparing for your blind tasting, right? Yep. Yeah. D- July 26th through 28th. Not that I'm counting. Fantastic. All right. Good luck, man. Thanks. <laughs> Wish you the best of that. But seriously, like, I mean, that means you're drinking a lot. I'm, I'm sure you can spit, but still, like, wh- how are you doing this? Like, how are you able to maintain the energy for all the things you have going on in your life while also maintaining an active wine life? It's a very high reliance on crystal methamphetamine. <laughs> this, I knew no, it. I knew it. <laughs> you are from no, Southern I, California. I, so. I, I do. Uh, but, um, yeah, so... Uh, I get asked that question a lot. Now, I don't know that I have an awesome answer for it, but what I will tell you is that I went through a super, super gnarly divorce um, that lasted literally 13 years. That's I was married for 11 years, but the divorce lasted 13 years. Welcome to California Family Court. And through that process, wow. I was a single dad, but also a partner in a 
in a large, you know, global consulting firm. And so I, I developed all these coping mechanisms just that would allow me to try to deal with little kids in different schools and bath time and homework and, and also managing a professional career. And, uh, and I did that for a decade. And then when the kids aged out, I had those routines and I, I had those, those things in place and it allowed me all of a sudden I had like tons of capacity, um, to, mm. to, to pursue things that I personally was interested in, but it, it wasn't like I planned it that way. It was like, I fell into it, you know, through the most, you know, emotionally taxing process ever. I don't recommend it by the way, but it's working out great now. Yeah. So, so, so but it, you know, if you want to take 13 years of your life and just throw it in the shitter and then, you know, um, for, for, I mean, uh, I, I always assume that, and I'm guessing it's true that you probably just, you know, you're genetically or you're in your DNA is probably a, a high level of energy. You were probably always that, that young person as well, where you were just, a, uh, sort of charging it. Yeah. True, I mean, or? that, that's, that's kind of been who I, who I, who I am since, you know, I was, you know, a kid, like just, you know, Pete Rose approach to life, just charge, you know, charge the bases, dive in, go, 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 go. And, and that's what keep, keeps me energized. Actually, when I, what happens is when I slow down, I stagnate, it sucks. So I just mm. keep the pedal, you know, yep. pressed down all the time. Nice. Any, do you have any, like, if you've had a heavy night of drinking, do you have any tips or hacks, biohacks that you've come up with to recover quickly and make it through the next day of, you know, packed schedule? I mean, you can go out with the boys, but you better get up with the men if you want to be important. You know, it's, <laughs> it's more like the, the mental state. But here's the like yeah. some some things that I do. Um, water is to me, I think, the best. Um, and it antidote for tomorrow. Um, and, and so, and it doesn't, it doesn't help if you drink it tomorrow, you got to drink it now while you're drinking. So one of the things I try to do, if, if I know I'm, I'm going to be consuming a lot of alcohol is, is at the same time, just be constantly drinking water, you know, B12 is, is a great, um, solution too. you know, you get kind of depleted with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the bottom line is, is you got to pay the tax, right? Like if, <laughs> if you're, if you're going to do, a big night, there's going to be a tax tomorrow and you can minimize the tax, but it, you can't eliminate it. So yeah, you just, yeah. I mean the tax, it, you know, the older you get, the tax might not just be tomorrow. Oh, be no, like I'm familiar with that too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, pro, pros play hurt, right? Like, you, yeah, exactly. You, you, you just gotta, gotta get it done. But um, um, yeah, if, if, by the way, if anyone comes up with a miracle cure for that, I'm the, I'm the first, I'm willing to beta test anything because you're right. As you get older, <laughs> it, it just gets tougher and tougher and tougher. I mean, shit, I was at pro wine a few weeks ago and, and, uh, you know, uh, I've tasted 250 wines by 2 PM and, and you're just like going, and now I have a dinner and now I have an after party and it's, and I'm 50. <laughs> yeah. How, how often do you train? So you're, you're a marathoner, uh, extreme marathoner. Um, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Okay. Um, so I would what's say, your training schedule like? So um, 
it, it kind of depends on what type of race I have coming up. So, you know, when I did Antarctica, I did like a lot of um, cold training um, and less physical training. And then a lot of like running in like sand and mud to try to simulate snow. Um, oh, yeah. When I, the, the first time I ran in the Himalayas, I did like a lot of breath work because, you know, I live at sea level, and, you know, so, um, but, but I would say normally my training regime is, is a blend of cardio and kind of high impact work stuff, uh, weight stuff, not, I would say CrossFit adjacent, you know, I don't know that I buy okay. into a hundred percent of all the philosophies of CrossFit, but that kind of idea of, you know, putting, putting weight on and, and doing some impact stuff. And but I, like, I, I, I mean, try is to this a daily stuff. thing? Are you, are you like, is there a time every day where somebody's going to find you, uh, like either at a gym or running or something like that? No. And I, I, and, and okay. I think that's more a function of my lifestyle that I don't have a routine. You know, I'm, I'm traveling all the time. And yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah. Like some nights I'm, I'm doing stuff until midnight cause I've got events and then some mornings I got to be up at 5am cause I'm doing conference calls with Bhutan or I'm, I'm in whatever time zone. So I, I don't have the luxury of a routine. Um, so for me, it's just try to jam it in when I can. Um, and, and sometimes I fail, you know, and I try not to beat mm. myself up about it when I do. It's like, okay, you know, it, it, it's probably yeah. no different than like, Hey, we all try to eat kind of healthy, but you know, I, a pizza is pretty damn good. And so, all right, yeah. pizza, but then you got to pay the tax. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Got it. Do you, have you had to eliminate things from your life? Like, I mean, do you, it, I, I don't see a huge social media presence for you. Is that something you've just sort of cut out to? I, to I, I'm literally like, I try to just be engaged enough because I understand that it's a technology platform that's important for certain channels today, but it's yeah. not something I'm going to spend a bunch of time on. I don't spend a lot of time like watching television. I, I don't, you know, I, I've sort of eliminated things that are non-accretive for the most part. Now, all that being said, like I, I will say I do, I do do this thing where I, um, I run myself ragged and then I need like a day or two of complete recharge where I just lay on the couch and watch television. <laughs> um, Got it. Just like, but like, a, <laughs> like, like I, you know, I have like one of my really, you know, my best friends is like a, a football fanatic. And so, you know, 18 weeks out of the year, Sunday is gone because he's watching games on multiple televisions all day long. And I'm like, dude, that's right. one seventh of your life for one third of the year. You, you, you're given that, you're yeah. just giving that away. Like I get, I don't get any benefit from that, but I appreciate that he does. Yeah. But I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It is a, it's, yeah, it's right. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. This is, uh, you know, giving me some pointers. I definitely need to do more with my life after reading your bio. So I'm, I'm <laughs> taking notes. Um, <laughs> um, you're a writer too. I mean, this is something that I, I think we also share and you, you, you've published five books at this point. Oh, I think I published, I, right? I think I published 11 actually. 11. Okay. Sorry. I I, the... You've got to just, I think so. Yeah. I published I published seven wine books, and I published two kind of fiction books, and then I published 
two like technical manuals, but it's, it's under different, like all my personal stuff is under like a pseudonym. Um, Got it. Michael Amen, which is my middle name. Um, so that's, and that's the stuff I give a shit about. Like I could kind of care less about the, the technical, you know, business stuff that I've written. The fun stuff is the, the wine <laughs> stuff for sure. You just happen to have an expertise in that other field. So might, might as well take advantage of that. Yeah. Is that, um, and one of those books is the, the compilation of, uh, the emails that you do for your, your website and, and email list, drinking and knowing things. Yeah, actually that, I did that, that volume one and volume seller. two of that. So two of the books are, are that just those compilations. Got it. Okay. Got it. Got it. Um, have you, have you read those? Right. I'll, I'll happy. I'm happy to send you a copy if you haven't there. I would love to. No, I would love to. I, I just read one. Um, and I, I have, I have a quibble with you, honestly. Um, not <laughs> just the, the one that's on your website. Oh, the team. You, uh, you base. Huh, yeah. You shit talk Norton. <laughs> Norton's fucking terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I could blind taste you on some Norton that you would think was Cabernet or that you would think was Vinifera. Honestly, I, I this I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna have to find I'm gonna I'm gonna surprise you. I'm gonna send you something. Or the next time I see you, I will have bottles and we will I will challenge you. I I, I am completely open to having my opinion changed, but my opinion <laughs> is based on experience, and I, I am right now one hundred percent. You know, my 100% of my Norton experiences have been dog shit. Yes. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if, there, no, if there's I, a great I, one, fuck, I'm a wine guy, right? Let, let's go, man. Prove me wrong. I, I'm, I'm all in. <laughs> um, TerraVox. You should check out TerraVox. They're doing a, a lot of cool stuff in, uh, and what is the state? The the state in the middle of the country, Missouri. Um and they they have won like double gold two years in a row with a Norton that uh, I I had to try. I did the vertical and both were really beautiful. I mean, look, is it the best wine I've ever had in my life? No, but was it a really fantastic wine? Absolutely. It was really good. So I, I checked them out for sure. And I th- I wonder, I mean, this is, you know, leading into bigger things that I would love to discuss with you, but like, I wonder how much of that experience that you have and that so many people have is because these, these grapes haven't been taken seriously and haven't been, you know, showered with the kind of love and resources that Vinifera has been, you know, showered with and, you know, prime spots and prime winemaking techniques and, you know, everything else involved in that. And then of course, you know, they don't show well because you're, you know, they're not playing on the same field as the other, as the Vinifera. What do you think about that? There's no question that, that, um, you know, Burgundy had the benefit of, you know, 2000 years of Vinifera and then 300 years right. of monks mapping every vine, right? So if somebody had done that with Norton in Virginia, right. you know, could it be something similar? Maybe. I, I mean, I, it's hard to, it's hard to say. I don't know. Um, but so you're I'm right. I'm on a mission like, to start that process. That's what I, that's my mission, I think, really with this podcast is to get, to, to really be, to lay the groundwork for a truly American wine, you know, that, that is, is not tied anymore to Europe. That isn't like it's American version of a French wine, that it's actually purely American wine. But that's like, you know, like we'll all be dead by the time that happens, you know, in a really beautiful way. Well, I and think. I mean, that's kind of what I'm doing in Bhutan, you know, like we're right. going to take us a hundred years to dial that in. Be, just given the right. diversity of microclimates and, and uh, elevations and everything there. And, I, you know, I keep telling telling everybody, like, I'm 
doing this for my grandkids, not for me, you know? And so you, you went to Bhutan, so let's go there. So why, why Vinifera? This is my first challenging question for you. Well, so, um, you know, they have zero indigenous grape varietals, right? So anything you're bringing okay. in, you're, anything that you're going to plant, you're going to bring in. Um, right. Okay. We, so a, starting yeah. with that. Um, and so then let's assume that you're, you're bringing something into a, a place where um, there are a, a plethora of challenges, um, but opportunities galore. Um in, in terms of just sort of optimizing the probability of success, you would want to bring in a, a grapes that had more history, more data, um, and also the ability to sell it, right? So like, you know, if I was walking through a total wine and I saw a Bhutanese Cabernet on the shelf, I would be like, oh, hell yeah, I'm trying that. Or a Bhutanese Chardonnay or whatever. If I saw a Bhutanese Norton, or a Bhutanese chambercine or, you know, um, pick it, like I'm probably much less interested in trying that. Now, all that being said, just there's some climate challenges there that uh, we we are planning some Traminet and Vidal there um, because oh, I want to okay. play around with it. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I think it – we're already spending everything we got trying to make uh, an amazing wine. I don't want to layer on top of that. Also, trying to figure out how to make Norton drinkable, right? Or or to educate people about like, okay, this is a grape you've never heard of uh, that's not globally recognized, and yet you need to try it. <laughs> um, right. And here's why, kind of thing. Which you know, not that that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's. You know what I'm I'm trying to do, but I it, it is a hard thing to do when you're trying to start a business from scratch that already has a bunch of challenges. I well, and and the other thing too is like if there were random indigenous varietals there, like for sure I would be playing around with that because my whole goal is to capture, you know, the essence of Bhutan and put it in a bottle so that people can enjoy that. Um, and so if they had weird random stuff there, I would be tripling down on that. But there's not. You know, okay. the Marco Polo never got there. Alexander the Great never got there. The Roman <laughs> army never got there. Like nobody ever got there. So nobody ever bought grapes and there wasn't indigenous stuff. Um, so yeah. the cool thing about that for me is like, it's a blank slate. Like I get yeah. to decide what this looks like for the country. Um, and yeah, I could, I could be bringing in, you know, Honduraba Zerbi, uh, Honduraba Zuri or, you know, weird, super weird stuff. But I'm like, look, people know cab. They like cab. There's a ton of data about how to make good cab. Um, <laughs> you know, why, why, why bet the farm on, on something else, you know, play this, play yeah. the safe bet. And that's the businessman in me talking, you know, not yeah. the wine, passionate, uber geeky guy talking. Well, I have more, more questions along this line, but let's, let's step back a minute. Um, or let me ask you to step back a minute. Uh, and just talk about Bhutan in general. Like I, I know you, like w when I hear you talk about it, when I've, you know, I've done my research to listen to you on other things, I actually hear your voice sort of change as you talk about, it sounds like just a really special place. I wonder if you could sort of just describe it, you know, paint a picture and any, any experiences that might capture that for people listening. Yeah. And, and you know, you're right. I have like, like I, sometimes I almost get choked up about it. Like it's, it's this, 
truly just magnificent spot. And so for, for the listeners that don't know much about Bhutan, so it's this little kingdom that's tucked in between Tibet and Nepal and the Himalayas, but they have somehow managed to remain neutral. And, and all of the political man. bullshit that's been going on in that region for, for years, they have remained neutral. Um, and they've, they've kind of been able to, to be like the Switzerland of, of the Himalayas. And yeah. through that, you know, they've done some amazing things. Uh, and I, I, I just have to give the company just ridiculous or the country ridiculous credit for, for having the foresight to do some things like they don't measure gross domestic product. They measure gross national happiness. They said early on, it's more important for our citizens to be happy than to be rich. And so we're going to focus on that um, and we're going to measure it and we're going to make that our number one priority. And what an awesome way to live, right? Who wouldn't yeah. rather be happy? Yeah, I know. I some mean, isn't that right? Isn't money supposed, I mean, isn't GDP supposed to be a means to that end anyway? So why not measure the end, you know, like... Is that a good way to look at it, would you say? Yeah. Or, or, or another way to look at it, which I think is more the way that they look at it, is that um, having more shit doesn't necessarily make you happier. And right. what, you should, what you should do is find the things that make you happy and, and lean in on those. And that could be, you know, being outdoors or being with family or being with community or, or they have seven pillars to their to their gross national happiness strategy. Um, and, uh, and, and each one of them is, is slightly different. There's like a social one and an environmental one. And, um, but, but yeah, they're, I, they're, I, go, I'm sorry. I don't mean to talk over no, you. No, I, they're, they're really great guides. I just encourage anybody listening to look those up. Cause it's just, it is a revolutionary idea that they've embraced that, on this national level for the entire country. It's, well, it's really a beautiful thing. What's funny is and, I, like I had, was having dinner with these um, government officials and one of the government officials is like a part-time monk. Um, and so I, you know, I'm super curious to get his take on stuff. And he was like, Mike, he goes, look, he goes, are we happier than anybody else? Like everyone says we're the happiest country on the planet. He goes, I don't know that that's true. We're people like, you know, we have greed and envy and, you know, anger and all of these things. He goes, I don't know that I'm any happier than you are, but what I do know, and he goes, and I've been to America, uh, at, you know, and I, and I've seen it and he goes, but what I do know is that we've made it a priority to try to be happier, to try to improve ourselves on the happiness vector. Whereas like America has tried, has made it a priority to improve themselves on the economic vector. Um, and those are two different things. And, and, uh, you know, we're at different spots. We might be behind you in both for all I know, you know, um, but, but we're trying to be happier. And I'm like, that's great, dude. You know, what an awesome way to live. I want to be happier. Shit. Yeah. It's a, is it a predominantly Buddhist country? Yeah, it is. It is uh, very much a Buddhist country. Yeah. And they also have some other cool national things like they're the first and only carbon negative country. Is that right? Yeah. They're the, they're the only carbon negative country on the planet, which is dope. Um, they actually <laughs> have it written into their constitution that 
I think, and the numbers, these numbers are not going to be precise, but they're directionally accurate, that I think it's 67% of the country will remain um, forested, um, that they will never develop more than, you know, whatever the balance is, 33%. And right now I think they're at about 73. So they they can develop another 6% of their lands, but then no, everything else is remaining um, wilderness. And they're also on... They're aspirationally on track to become the first 100% organic country in the world. So, you know, organic wine podcast, you know, that's probably right in your power alley. <laughs> they want everything grown in the country to be organic, which is, I mean, man, if they could pull that shit off, I mean, now yeah. that's, they're well ahead of everybody else on that front. And people come from all yeah. over the world to study sustainable agriculture and, and organic, um, you know, production of, of, ag products in Bhutan. I mean, they yeah, are, sort they of, are the benchmark. That's amazing. Yeah. That's really cool. And I, it, I, yes, it definitely did uh, sort of trip my trigger for sure. Um, <laughs> when I heard about that, <laughs> um, but I heard about it through you, which is, I, I think the powerful story that you get to tell, you know, and, and one of the powerful things about wine, which is, you know, what, really what's super cool about what you're doing. Um, I, I wonder if you could talk about what it's like, though, because of that, they must have some pretty, like a lot of thought and a lot of care must go into a new project where you're trying to put in, you know, acres of anything, right? Because they don't want you to clear forest and put in a vineyard or, you know, whatever, you know, how, did, how what did you encounter that you had to consider and, you know, just some interesting things like that and feel free to get, you know, technical or detailed in any way. No, I mean, the, the, I'm, I'm snickering over here because like I'm trying to figure out how to how to concisely respond to this question. But uh, me, <laughs> um, because because you cannot believe the amount of stuff that we had to do. But um, wow. let, me, let me preface it by saying that that one that Bhutan has some some interesting objectives as a country. Number one, they they would love to um, expand you know, export more higher value agricultural products. And there's fewer things that are higher value from an ag perspective than wine. You know, Bhutan grows the best red rice in the world, but you know, that's, you're never going to get $200 a, a, you know, a pound for red rice. They grow the best cardamom in the world. Same thing. Um, And so, so wine allows them to do that. They also want to to really focus on brand Bhutan, and, and I sound like I'm speaking for the country, and I'm I, I'm definitely not, but this is my perspective on on what they want to do. Uh, gotcha. yeah. And so, you know, you've got if you go to Whole Foods and you buy some cardamom, it doesn't say Bhutan on it, but if you go and buy a buy a bottle of wine anywhere, it says exactly where it's from, um, and it's um, because the focus on environmentalism and sustainability, the idea of biodiversity is, is really strong with them. And so, you know, to bring in the right crops that are virus-free and disease-free um, will increase biodiversity. So it kind of aligns with the, uh, those aspects from a social perspective. You know, think about you're a, you're a, you know, we're not worried about money, but we do want our people to have um, you know, a, a good state of living. And so let's say you're a, a subsistence farmer, you know, you've got three rice paddies and on terrace slopes. Um, 
the fallow land between the terraces, you can't really grow much there. But you know what you could? Venefra goes great on slopes. And so um, we can fill in some of the white space with this higher value crop. Uh, everybody gets to participate in it. So it, it sort of checks a lot of the boxes. So the country is very motivated to try to figure out a way to make this work. Um, that being said, ton of challenges and a ton of risks. And so fortunately for us, we've had this really collaborative relationship with the, the government where we want to do it, they want to do it. And it's been a question of like, okay, let's figure out how do we do this in the, the way that'll manage risk most effectively and also, uh, you know, without taking a hundred years to figure it out, you know? Right, right. And so we, right. we've, we've been walking this, this line with them and it's, you know, so far it's working out great. We haven't made That's wine cool, yet, right? so we'll see. Yeah. So, um, well, I mean, I, so can you give an example of, you know, just some of the restrictions that, I mean, any, anything anecdotally that, you know, I know that you, it sounds like you went through years of, or uh, at least. Oh, no, years. No, let's call it years because it was years. But like, I'll give you an example. Um, The, you know, you're bringing in Venephora, which is a foreign species. Right. And you are bringing it in from, you know, outside of the environment. And so who knows what comes in with it? And so one of the things that they said is there was a lot of skepticism, first off, about whether Venephora would even flourish there. Um, And I told them early on, like, no. The whole reason I'm doing this is because I am 100% convinced that Venefra will flourish here. Um, so we had to prove that it would grow. Um, and then secondly, we had to prove that it wouldn't threaten any of the other, the rest of their agribusiness, you know, vertical. Right. And so you're not, we planted... You're not bringing in the phylloxera to, you know, 18th, 19th century Europe. I, yeah, I was less worried about phylloxera, but I was more worried about like no, I meant weird that virus, it. right? That like like it, it right. it's sort of relatively benign for venephora, but it's death for red rice. <laughs> like you know, right, right, right. I plant two two cabernet vines, yeah. and next thing you know, the entire rice, you know. So right. so what we did was we we worked with them, and we identified. Um, we went to their agricultural research centers and we identified six vineyards and we planted vineyards at their research centers and, and quarantined them and let the, the research center be heavily involved in the cultivation of those vines so that they could watch it. And they could also watch it in a controlled environment next to all of the other crops that they're researching at the same time. So like literally, like it, it, I was worried, like, oh man, if something happens, like they're going to be burning the vineyards and like kicking us out. But I was confident that it would work. And I was confident in the way that we sourced the vines and managed phytosanitary requirements that, um, that it would, it would be effective. And it was, but it took us a, a couple years to prove that out. Right. And was that, that meant you could only do a small test plot basically before you, you couldn't do any wider planting at that point. Correct. Yeah. I mean, it, not each, each site's slightly different, but each of those initial six vineyards or uh, let's say anywhere between one to three acres. Okay. okay. But at all different yeah. altitudes, you know, from as low as let's say 2,500 feet to as high as 9,000 feet. 
um, in a lot of different microclimates. So amazing, yeah, and cool. All right, so yeah, that would be a <laughs> uh, an interesting process. Does labor? I don't think is a problem though, right? I mean, it's a it's an agri an agrarian. Oh yeah, they, I mean these guys are like some of the most skilled organic farmers in the world. Like people go to Bhutan to learn from them. So and they're cheap. You know, the average agricultural laborer makes I don't know nine bucks a day. Right. So um, something, yeah. You know, you you and have this army of very skilled people. Now that being said, they've never grown vinifera. So one of the significant challenges that I have had and continue to have is they're like, yeah. We want to maximize yields. We want to maximize ripeness. We want to maximize size. And I'm like, no, we don't. <laughs> we want to make bitch and wine. And all of that that you just said doesn't necessarily apply to uh, to making the best wine possible. So um, that's been a constant educational debate. But I get it. You know, for their entire existence, they've been like, oh, you got a fruit tree? Get more fruit. Get bigger fruit. Get juicier fruit. Get riper fruit. And so, right. That's where their, now, their mindset's at, and and skill wise, I, I I think I heard a you telling an anecdote about um, trying to teach people how to prune via like Skype, and then that didn't go so well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, even doing some research on me, yeah. Um, <laughs> the uh, so never grown vinifera, never grown grapes. I mean, grapes don't exist in Bhutan, and so, but they understand pruning. Um, and as our vineyards were coming online, this global pandemic thing happened and Bhutan went on full lockdown. Like they shut down the borders completely. And so we're sitting there going like, shit, we're trying to prune. And I, I have a very skilled viticulturalist. He's a professor at Cornell and a uh, wine consultant. And, um, but he can't go there. And so we're like, okay, look, like maybe we can <laughs> film some videos of you like trimming plants and and we were trying everything we could to to show these guys how to do it and then i i hired another viticulturalist um a guy from france um to go live in bhutan full time um and he was able to hit the ground in eh, maybe april of this year march or april and so he got there and he uh, first thing he did of course is tour all the vineyards he's like shit, they did it all wrong. Like, so he had to, he like repruned all of our vineyards, taught the guys like, we got to do it this way. Um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, exciting, <laughs> but this is my whole thing. Like this is for our grandkids. This is going to take us a long time to dial this in. But I mean, think yeah, about how cool is this? Like, like the last time I think, a, a entire wine industry in a country was created was in New Zealand in the 1800s. Like this, this just hasn't been done. And, 200 years, an opportunity mm. to have like, here's this blank slate, figure it out for the next thousand years is like the coolest possible thing you could ever possibly do. Like, I love that you're doing shit in South Central. That's dope. Um, <laughs> but it's never going to be that, right? You, right. You, we're never going to raise South Central, you know, all the buildings and, and convert it to to winemaking. Like, it, it's, a, <laughs> no. it's a curiosity thing that's awesome and cool, but it's it's not going to sustain thousands of families for for hundreds of years right that's yeah that is really very a very cool opportunity i mean it's it's unique and you, you know it's it's fascinating how you sort of stumbled into that as well right i mean you 
you haven't how how long has your total wine career been i mean not i mean when you've just really when it's been this thing that you've been pursuing so not i mean just like a love or passive thing yeah yeah so I, I so i started my love affair with wine about 30 years ago the first 20 years i was just that douchebag rolling around trying to be the guy with the coolest bottle and stuff and then the last 10 years is when i've really tried to understand it um and and embrace the fact that it's not understandable <laughs> that's great yeah and you say more about that like where where are you where are well, you so in I, that journey yeah so i think i think um a lot of people that I see, you know, they, they get excited about wine. Um, something, something flips the switch. And I, I actually firmly believe that there are a few things in our brain that we are neurologically wired for um, because of 50,000 years of tribal living. I think running is one of those. And I think wine drinking is one of those. And what happens is, is, is somehow in your life, something occurs that turns that switch to on and you're like, oh shit, I got to go run or oh shit, I got to go like drink some more wine. But, but in America particularly, um, when that switch flips on, it's like, oh, I need to go get 90 point stuff. I need to look at points. I need to drink big reds, the bigger, the better. Um, and, and so you kind of go down that, that road and your, your journey goes from, oh, I'm, I'm drinking, you know, $10 cabs to, oh, this Mondavi, you know, uh, cab is, is 28 bucks and it's a, it's a great wine. I really like that. And then, oh, wow, people are telling me about Silver Oak and how cool Silver Oak is. And that's 60, 70 bucks, you know, that, or 80 bucks now probably. Um, that's a little out of my price range, but well, I'm going to stretch for that. And like, Oh, I really, really like this. Like what's this silver Oak Napa Valley cab. That's 150. And you sort of do that progression. And in your head, you are progressing and you're learning and you are, but it's one dimensional. And, uh, you know, and that's what I did too for 20 fucking years. So like, I'm not throwing rocks at that at all, but, but I think at some point there the sort of um, woke wino, if you will, realizes like, oh, this is a whole bigger thing. There's sweet wines, there's orange wines, there's rosé wines, there's white wines, there's fortified wines, there's stickies, there's, you know, th this is like a much broader genre. You know, it's it, maybe an analogy. I I haven't rehearsed this answer, like, so I'm like trying, I'm fumbling around trying to find the right words, but like maybe an analogy is like, Oh, I like steak. Oh, I had this great steak at Sizzler. Oh, I'm moving up to Morton's. I'm going to have a ribeye. And like, oh, wait, there's Wagyu. But it's all steak. And then you realize right. like, oh, shit, there's a whole bunch of other food out there that's also <laughs> awesome. It's just different than steak. Right. Uh, and, and so I tripped into that. And, uh, and the more I un unpeeled the onion, the deeper it got. And I'm an inherently curious guy. So I'm sort of like, whoa, wait a minute. 
you, you're telling me that that Chiani shit is also, it's the same grape as Brunello. That's great. Oh, wait, it's also the same grape as Vino Nobile de Montepulciano. Oh my God. And, and by the way, they don't oak it as heavily in Montepulciano because they're using larger barrels and older barrels. And like, that's a little bit more approachable. And holy shit, wait, there's Morolino di Scansano. Like, that's more coastal, but it's the same grape. Like, wow, this is awesome. And all of that stuff is like, right. it takes a like borderline autistic level of, of commitment and curiosity to try to unpack that shit. Cause the first guy's like, ah, I drank the can. It was pretty fucking good. I'm done. Not me. <laughs> right, right. I'm, I'm just, I'm still unpeeling and it's, it's fun gotcha. for me. Well, and that you brought up a bunch of stuff, but one of the things I'd love to get your take on is, you know, the this obsession with blind tasting at these high level certification things. So obviously you're in the midst of that. And I don't want to like, you know, in any way <laughs> deflate, you know, your enthusiasm for trying to pass this test. But like, how could you blind taste the divert? Like, I understand how you could, you you know, I understand how you can start blind tasting when you know that you're dealing with vinifera. But if you expand the category of wine beyond vinifera, which I, I think it should fairly include more than just vinifera, it <laughs> still be able to be called wine. I'll bet you then, do, you motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> you and your Norton. See, there you go. Into an MW exam. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, mean, I, I, get the, I get the question. And so I think um, what's interesting about the master wine exam is it's, and they keep impressing us, impressing this upon us that it's, you're not a master of fine wine. You're a master of wine. You need to understand the positioning of a $7 white Zinfandel at the same way you need to understand a, the positioning of a Mucini Grand Cru Pinot Noir. And mm -hmm. this is in historically, it was the blind tasting was more about what is it and where is it from? But now you have this massive global convergence where, you know, the new world producers are saying, oh, there's a sea of new world styles. I need to differentiate my product to try to sell it. So I'm going to make a more Burgundian Pinot Noir. I can't tell you how many like US-based <laughs> producers I've heard use that term. Oh, we, we make a Burgundian Pinot Noir. Like, that, so that's crazy to me. At the same time, in Burgundy, there's people going, oh, like the new world consumers in America with their Bitcoin, you know, they want this oakier, richer style. So we're going to extract the shit out of this. We're going to let it sit on the, sin, the skins a little bit more. We're going to put, there was this one guy in Burgundy that was doing 200% new French oak. He would age it for 12 months in a new French oak barrel and then move it to a different new French oak barrel for another oh, 12 months. Oh my God. And wow. I'm just like, dude, you're rocking it. Like you're, you're, you're cooking the Wagyu till it's, till it's well done. Like don't do that <laughs> shit. But so, just charcoal. so, so anyways, the, the point of all this is the convergence of this, of, of wine globally makes it less relevant about what it is and where it's from. And so what the MW exam has done has, is it's kind of moved beyond that and, and more into like, What's the quality of it and why? Like, is this a good wine or is this a bad wine? What's the, what's the market positioning of this wine? How would you sell this wine? Who would buy this wine? And so like they put um, a Lagrine uh, from Northern Italy 
on the exam a couple years ago. I failed another another exam. I failed, by the way. Um, <laughs> and uh, and the question was not like what is this and where is it from, because you, I mean you could pick a Yugoslavian Merlot or you know whatever. No one's going to get it. And the question right. was more about like what do you think about this wine? Like describe this huh. this wine. Like is it a good wine? If so, why is it a is it a bulk wine? If so, why like where would you sell this wine? How would you sell it? Would you sell it? Is this a restaurant wine? Is this a food wine? Or is this a, um, you know, a fine wine that's a, you know, destined for collectors and cellaring? Like, what is it? And I think that's, that's where at least the Institute of Masters of Wine is headed. And that's what we're being tested on. And by the way, that's frustrating as fuck because (laughs) there's, there's a lot more variability in that than there was like, is this from Australia or not? Yes or no? Right. <laughs> but I, but I mean, truly, if you if you're gonna hold yourself out in today's world as a quote unquote master, one of the few hundreds of people in the world who truly understand what you can about wine, no one can get it all. Um, that's probably where we need to be focused, and and. I'm circling in a very roundabout way back to your original question. I think in that discussion, I think it's fair to include non-Vanephora varietals. Mm-hmm. And truly, you know, if, if you want to know about what's going on in wine, there's a lot of that shit going on in the U.S. Yeah. today. Hybrids, certainly. Yeah. Not just here, but globally. Yeah, it's really, really starting to take off. I. I mean, it's definitely something I I focus on, so I might have, might have a skewed perspective on it. But um, yeah, it does seem like more and more. I think, especially, I, I mean, I just think as the vinifera gene pool, you know, the further we get from the time those original clones were selected, you know, the less they have adapted to the changes in our world that have occurred in the last couple hundred years, and the less you know the weaker and more sickly they seem to look and the more propped up they need to be with chemicals and things like that depending on where they're grown and unfortunately a lot of people are trying to grow them in you know places like like the east coast of the US where just arguably they should never be planted because of the pressures and the amount of stuff you have to do to to keep them alive but um you didn't hear that from me no actually you did but um yeah, it, it it is definitely something that's taken off, and I'm I mean that's kind of why I questioned you about Bhutan. It just seems like, you know, that's uh, you know just where my head is, where I would um, I would I'd think about some a place like that as maybe. Well, so so think about like like the the way that where, wine evolved, uh, or let's let's back that up. The yeah, way that wine grapes evolved, it happened. Um, not to overuse the term, it happened organically. You know, there were wild grapes growing and, uh, you know, one would get pollinated randomly from a grape a while, a ways over and the bird would happen to eat that grape and shit out the seed and, and it just happened to land in a spot where it could take root. And some of it turned out awesome. And some of it turned out garbage, you know, Gouet, uh, Blanc, you know, was like the father of like. I don't know, 21 international varietals. And um, it, it was it was random. It was nature. It was, you know, true sort of capitalistic. Um, 
that that's an interesting term. Like, so now there's capitalistic, uh, you know, anarchy going on in, in the agricultural world. So that happened for literally <laughs> that is tens of thousands of years. And we ended up with Cabernet and fucking Chardonnay and Gamay. And we ended up with all these great, great wines. And then somebody said, stop, that's it. These are right. the grapes. And the only things that you can, particularly in the US, the only things that you can sell and call wine are clones of that stuff. Right. And I give Jim Clenenden like the maddest fucking props in the world for because when he was like, no, fuck this, we're gonna, we're gonna create like this this environment um up in Santa Barbara where we're gonna encourage this development of of new varietals in a totally organic and haphazard way. And knowing full well that if it happened, he couldn't sell the fucking wine as wine because it's not an allowable thing. Um, But I mean, just imagine that if like, if you said, all right, evolution's over, no humans can mate anymore. Uh, We just start cloning (laughs) cloning. the last generation of humans and we'll just do more of that. Our perfection. Right. (laughs) Yeah. We, we made it. We're done. And I think I'm like, that is not the right answer. However, back to your question about Bhutan, I don't have indigenous varietals and I need to sell some shit before I die. So I'm going to plant Cabernet (laughs) and Straw. And uh, well, okay, here's a question for you. And and maybe this is just an idea, like not really, I'm not challenging you at all. Maybe this is just helpful thoughts. But I mean, what about going back to the old world way of naming by place you know and and that gives you that freedom of like great you you, you know somebody asks you be like yeah there's cab in there and that helps sell it but there might be you know 10 other things or there might you know it might not be it might only be 49 percent cab and there's some other you know crazy thing in there that does so much better that but just doesn't have any rain, name recognition what if you you know what about that as an idea for bhutan well so the the good thing about bhutan is that there are no rules And I actually, I drafted the wine regulations for the country. They have yet to be ratified, but um, I can pretty much make the rules be whatever I want, um, which is super interesting. You know, it's like, well, should we label by place? Should we label by grape? Should we just say anything goes? Um, And inevitably, the end game is that you get a... Um, you get a consumer who has this product and has an experience with it. And, and that experience is magical to them. And I think you can get there by grape. I think you can get there by place. I think you can get there by it. And maybe because there's no rules, like maybe there's another way of thinking about this that, that hasn't been done before. Um, And I think about this a lot, like, like what, what other methods could you use? Uh, now, all that being said, then you step back and you go, all right, cool. Let's say you have a bottle of wine that has stuff in it from Bhutan. You need to get that into the hands of a consumer um, who will then have that experience. And, and what are they more likely to buy? You know, you could, you absolutely could say, we're just going to do, you know, names, but then I've got, oh, this is a Limnatong wine versus a Yusupong wine. And people are like, I don't know what the fuck that is. Or you could say, this is a Cabernet versus a Merlot. 
and be like, oh, I recognize that. I like Merlot. Right. Oh, it's Bhutanese. I'm curious. I'll try that. Mm-hmm. I don't know that either one of those answers is the right answer, by the way. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, for sure. You know, I mean, it's, well, I think of it as like branding too. So, if, I mean, if you think of like you're branding Bhutan, you're branding, you know, you're creating, I, 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 I would hate to pick any one brand, but let's say, you know, the, the Dom Perignon of Bhutan, you know, like nobody cares what the grapes are in Dom Perignon. They just know it's Dom Perignon. Like, right. you know, you have that opportunity potentially. And that also, you know, I mean, I think like Dom could start planting hybrids in their vineyards because Champagne can't grow Pinot anymore. They, you know well, what I they mean? They just like, approved that one, that one new hybrid for, for Champagne. Did you see that? No, is that that's fantastic? Yeah, I'm they they. Uh, I can't. It's like uh, I, I want to say Arnace, but it's obviously not Arnace, but it's something like that. They just approved um, within probably the last six months. They approved a hybrid for use in Champagne. I mean, climate wow. change is fucking real. Like, yeah, it's yeah, an issue. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> no, and that's. I mean, that's one of my big arguments. Is just like you, we are seeing France do the thing. You know, we in America have adopted these French grapes. And like you said, you, you painted such a great picture of how just like, okay, they're done. They're cooked, you know, take them out of the oven and never change them. While the place where they came from is actually changing. And and that, you know, the having the branding of the name and the branding you know of the place or the branding of the brand gives them that freedom because they're not going to, nobody's going to blink or, you know, even dig deeper than Dom Perignon. That's all they need to know. You know what I mean? Right. So that's, I mean, that's, I, I, I would love the U.S. to head in that direction. You know, I mean, I think like Napa could get in trouble, you know, with a change in climate when, you know, when Napa is like Baja, um, how's Cab going to be? You know, how's the quality of it going to be, even if you can still grow it? Is there going to be water to grow it, first of all? And then like, how's it going to taste even if you, there is water for it? How, and know? how do you keep it from burning? I right. Mean, like, <laughs> yeah, that too. I mean, right. the smoke tan issue is a real issue. Voltus. 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 Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I knew, I well, knew it would come to me. You know, this is what happens when you, you drink enough wine. Your, your memory <laughs> lags, you know, four minutes. How recent is that? Me. Yeah. But, but Do I mean, you know how it, recent that is? So so it's it's crazy because you're, you're sitting there and... And imagine you're in my position where someone goes, okay, here's a country. It's hundred percent organic or it's on the way on the road to hundred percent organic. It grows some of the best crops in the world. Um, we are awesome at growing shit. Um, what's the best wine that we can make from here? Yeah. And you're like, oh shit, I don't know. There's 10,000 varietals that you can grow in thousands of different methods from, you know, Kulara style trellising to pergola, you know, you can prune them high yield. Like, I don't know. Um, and, and so do you bet the farm? And by the way, I'm spending, you know, decades of my life and significant amount, significant amounts of my personal money on trying to figure this out. Right. Um, you know, you, you're gonna bet the farm on Cab and Syrah and Pinot and Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc, but there's a the wine geek in me is like, dude, 
you could you could just you could create the next new grape haphazard right yeah yeah you've got that blank canvas i mean that really is an awesome opportunity and responsibility i mean it's i i you know no pressure michael yeah no so so here's here's the way the pressure works um step one don't fuck up the 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 local agricultural economy step two grow some bitch and wine step three you know have that bitch and wine have a sense of place and how great would it be like imagine if you planted i'm just making this up but you know petite man sang next to cabernet and a bird you know shit out of seed and it grew some new grape that was just phenomenal that wasn't recognized anywhere it didn't have a name or anything it wasn't a hybrid it wasn't created in a lab it was created organically the, the way that literally every single wine grape in the world was created yeah and it was amazing. Now, now the flip side is, yeah. is, what's the probability of that happening versus yeah. me planting some Chardonnay and growing it? Ah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, true. I mean, you. I mean, you, you pointed it out, though. I mean, like planting from seed. You know, I'm not saying you're betting the farm on that, but maybe you know, maybe that's the way to get to that indigenous variety. Or it's not necessarily indigenous, obviously. Like it's, yeah, I don't know that you would call it indigenous, but maybe that's the way you get to that that thing that. You know, maybe it's not going to happen in, in our lifetime, maybe, but you might start, you might get down that road a little bit. Not, And I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't build a business plan around it, you know, in your position, but I, it, but I would, <laughs> but I would definitely be planning from E-round investors to, to go on. Right, right. <laughs> some random, uh, some random mother Gaia shit might happen and we'll, we'll be successful. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, truly, like, I think that there's, um, you know, that's where things get super interesting, you know, from a wine Yeah, that's amazing. And uh, imagine if... Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. You you said imagine if. I, no, I it was like, imagine if um, the, the next generation of, of grapes, you know, eventually Cab got invented. Eventually got Pinot got invented. Eventually Chardonnay got invented. What's the next thing that hasn't been invented? Right. You know, or, or, or created, um, not yeah. invented because invented implies sort of interventionist in a while, but like something that nature said, holy shit, these things go together. This is going to be awesome. Um, well, even, and right now, it- the entire global wine economy and the regulations do not allow for that. It's it's yeah. unfathomable that we, as a as a world, said... Nope, we're done. Grape evolution right. is over. That's it. We figured out what the great best grapes are for making wine, and that's it. We, we're done. This is, uh, you know, a fuck. Yeah. You're, you're getting me I, on my very well said. Now. I'm just railing. It's, no, very well said. <laughs> um, these are these, these are the. This is the. Um, that's why I wanted to give you the megaphone. Thanks, man. Um, <laughs> it, <it's, laughs> uh, for real, it's and I'm. I'm I'm right there with you and, and I hope that it happens. I mean, I know, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm planting vines from seed in my backyard to see what happens. And I know it's happening here and there around. Wait, wait, wait a lot of what are you ways. planting from seed? Well, so, I mean, you know, it's just like, like, you know, the grape seeds all shoot up 
individual whatever. So I what I've been doing is sort of mulching with the the press leaving. So whatever's left in the press, the skins and seeds, I'm mulching oh, with that and around the trees. And so they're sprouting up, you know, a, a few of them sprout up every year and shoot up into the trees and you know, it's just replicating a sort of what would happen in the wild if a if a bird shot out a grape seed next to a tree. Um, and yeah, but, but at the same time, that's limiting a little bit because it, it, you're not doing clones, but essentially you're going to grow the same grape, like unless well, genetically it's different. So you, you know, like you might get, so it, it will be a mutation. So it, it will have a lot of similar characteristics to its parent, but, um, but then what I'm going to do, you know, is all of these are sort of in a, a vine jungle at the back of the yard. And then I'm going to start intentionally planting the seeds that come out rather than just scattering them around so any grapes that grow now they're in a situation where maybe they're cross-pollinating you know who knows like i don't know if that kind of mutation would happen where they become not hermaphroditic but where they become sexed vines uh but maybe they do and then maybe we get a cross-pollination and then i plant a seed that is actually like the genetic mutation of a zinfandel and a chardonnay and they crossed you know, in pollen, and now the the grapes and the seeds from that have are a further mutation, but a cross of those two, and now we've got something truly unique, and potentially special, and potentially, you know, that does well here in South right, Central. Right. You know, what I mean, like that love South Central layer um, upon layer of 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 risk dimensions, right? But yes, but no. This is that. What I'm saying is like this is something I would just do uh, experimentally on the side. Like these, you know, I definitely have like VSP trellised cloned vines on rootstock as well that we make wine from because we want to make wine and not just wait and see if grapes actually form even on these things from seed yeah um you know so yeah i'm in a similar situation where it's like there is you know like we have a a wine club that is like excited to try the wines that we make from a yard so i have to make wine from our yard um but at the same time i've i've reserved you know a corner of the yard that's gonna be that's my future corner you know that's the like who knows what will happen maybe nothing but if it happens it's gonna be freaking awesome you know um yeah and 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 i think that that the way that we got to the wine industry today was completely haphazard nature taking its course right so Ideally, if you could create an environment that was um, just, you know, as close to that as possible, and then just let it run rampant and see what the fuck happened, <laughs> you know, right. you'd, you'd have right. probably a lot of failures, but so what? You just need one success and right. and you're golden. And the question is, is how long are you prepared to wait? And, and uh, right. you know, it, yeah. it could take a hundred years. Yeah, absolutely. But, but no, if that, it did, thing. you know, you might have the next thing. And yeah, yep. I mean, there's there, and also, I mean, it would be the next thing. But then, then you immediately are like, oh, do I just replicate the the mistakes of the past, and now we clone this new thing as the thing, or or do we start thinking about this as a process? You know, is this like actually? We need to embed in our agriculture and our viticulture this idea of a process where we're we're always looking for the next thing and there always is going to be a next thing because that process never ends. And so we're, you know, we've hedged our bets on that scale of, you know, that actually makes business sense then as well, where, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm just, no, I'm I mean, just it, riffing it, it, here. So, so, and this comes back to the whole, this whole thing about like we, 
in the wine business, we drew a line in the sand and we said, this is it. Evolution's done. And yet we haven't done that anywhere else in anything. Right. Um, and, and then we set up a whole system of rules and regulations to support that. Right. Um, and I mean, just imagine if you did that with people, like everyone's tall enough, like that's it. And then now we're going to have regulations. You can only be this tall. And like, if you're taller than this and you want to have sex with somebody else, you have to go file a form. <laughs> it's absurd. Get a variance. Yeah. You get a, um, get a variance, get, a, get an exception. Uh, we don't do that. And, and somehow yeah. we did it with wine in it. To me, like the joy and the mystery of, and the intrigue of wine is this fact that it's this unknowable, constantly changing thing. And then we came in and fucking reduced it, right? Yeah. yeah. Is, is there room in the MW for what we're talking about? Or is it? I mean, how, how stiff is it? <sighs> well... I don't want to speak poorly about the MW program, um, but maybe I it, because it's it's, it's amazing, <laughs> and I, it's led me to places I never thought I would go, and it's it's been just spectacular. However, I will say it's it is a, a little bit an, antiquated in the sense that um, it's more important to, to be able to describe the difference between Puligny Montrachet and Chassain Montrachet uh -huh. uh, than it is to think about a hundred years from now, what is the next Puligny Montrachet? And, mm -hmm. and part of that is probably like an economic decision in the sense that like, you know, you're, you're coming up with an industry qualification that then, um, I mean, imagine if you're, I don't know, I'm making this up, Pernod Ricard and you hire an MW to help you with your business. And the person comes in and goes, you know what you should do? Try a bunch of weird shit. And a hundred years from now, stuff's going to work out, you know? <laughs> uh, but, but what I would say is that the, the participants in the program, um, the folks who are, are doing this are thinking about the same things that we're talking about right now. And gotcha. I so mean, it's, I guess it's yeah. similar to like, if you're, if you want to be a, a surgeon, you're going through the medical boards, but at the same time, you're saying, you know, Eastern medicine's got some interesting points of view, but you're not being tested on that. And your, your salary is related to your ability to pass the boards. And so the last thing you're going to do is go to your boards and start talking about meditation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep yep well i i mean when i hear i mean when i think about like what you this opportunity and responsibility that you have in bhutan um i mean I, first of all it's just such a beautiful thing i'm so glad that you get to share that with me and with the world um but also i just want to offer you help like because it just sounds like You've got a burden and I mean, I have a lot of compassion uh, and empathy for being in your position. So if you need any help, let me know. Dude, um, I, like I need all the help I can get. I would love nothing more than to have as many trained eyes looking at this thing and helping me be successful as humanly possible. I Like I am not the smartest guy in the room. 
I'm a skateboard punk rock kid from Orange County. Like I, you know, I didn't grow up in the vineyards of Burgundy. Like I need all the help I can get. I will absolutely take you up on that. Awesome. As long as we're not, as long as you're not saying plant Norton and Limnathon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still going to win you over on that. Uh, I, 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 a Christmas I, present. Or I, rem- <laughs> I, I am open, open to be convinced. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure that I would recommend trying any Norton from near where you are now, though. I, I grew up in Pennsylvania <laughs> and uh, I, I can't speak to, now there is good wine being made there. I, I Yeah. Well, so, so it's, it's funny you say that. So um, we planted, we've, we've got 13 different varietals grown in Bhutan right now. 12 of yes. them are international. One of them is Petit Mansang. Uh-huh. And the reason that I planted Petit Mansang, two reasons. One, I love Jean-Saint and Pacheron du Vicbo. They're spectacular wines. But more importantly, Bhutan has monsoon pressure in the summer and Petit Mansang is super rain tolerant. So I was actually at an MW event in DC last weekend. And um, one of the people that was there runs a winery in Virginia. And she's like, oh, Virginia is making amazing Petit Mansang. And I'm like, I don't think that's true. <laughs> and she's like, I swear to you, as an MW candidate, it's true. You have to come down and try. We, we do a still one. We do a sweet one. We do a, a demi sack. Um, come see what we're doing with Petit Man saying it, it, you will find it interesting. So that is now on my radar screen to go explore Virginia Petit, Petit Man saying, um, to see, yeah, what's going on. Other than that, yeah, I'm uh, less excited about the East coast wine scene, but I, I remain <laughs> curious and convincible. Well, check out the cider scene. The cider scene is, uh, ah, fuck cider. I hate cider. <laughs> <laughs> oh no now i definitely have a mission um you. <laughs> I'll tell you, you know what you know what cider's good for cider's good, tell me distilling <laughs> and making calvados that's what cider's good for i've had some ciders that rival the best grand cru vintage champagne i've ever had so it's, for real. So it's funny so i um one of the reasons i moved out here is is i i i bought enough land to start a farm and I want to uh-huh. I want to do some farming, and so one of the things I seriously am considering planting, and I've been here nine days, right? So I haven't done shit yet, but I am seriously <laughs> considering planting cider trees. But that's an economic yeah. decision, not a passion decision. Yeah, I I mean I'm telling you, I've uh, there. I mean, there's so many different styles of cider, obviously, and there's and I'm definitely obviously not talking about you know what you would find in a typical bar. Um, or in a six pack at the grocery store. Um, but no angry you, orchard. Exactly. I wasn't going to name names, but definitely not. Um, and, but like, you know, I mean, you, if you get up around the finger lakes, there are people who are, you know, harvesting wild apples. So, I mean, like talk about space, you know, place specific and anybody listening who listens to the podcast regularly is sick of me talking about New York cider. I do almost as many cider episodes as, you know, grape episodes. Um, and but it is just it 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 is that vision that I'm sort of looking for in wine, which is like you know looking around, finding what thrives there, which is natural, which is growing wild, and then making the most of it, you know, cultivating it and you know honing it and treating it with the same seriousness that you you know that you would treat 
the best anything and the stuff that's happening with those producers that are doing that is it's magical it's do you know really, black really diamond i do know black diamond yeah i yeah, know the so, name i haven't had anything by then okay so uh so i'll tell i'll tell you a little cider story so my viticulturalist i think i mentioned is a professor at cornell um uh-huh. so I, I went to the finger lakes uh i don't know uh, a couple years ago um to go just you know see what was going on up there and um and he took me all over the place and he took me to black diamond and um because that guy is a professor at cornell as well and so he's got i don't know 20 or 30 different varietals of cider and we spent the entire afternoon at his place and we walked through like tree by tree like what was going on with the different varietals right right um and it it was very clear to me that um, there was a lot of varietal influence, a lot of terroir influence. And then we drank a bunch of the different stuff that he made. And uh, for the most part, I was like, okay, I can tell that this is well-crafted, but it's not like necessarily a style I like, but he made this one like fortified cider uh, that I ended up getting a case of it to take home. And, and it was, it was pretty delicious. What a pomo? Did he call it pomo? Yeah, pomo. Yeah, like okay. you know the words better than I do. Like my my cider uh, expertise is limited okay. to to one afternoon spent at Black Diamond. <laughs> yeah, pomo is it's they fortify it, right? Yeah, it's like a high. Yeah, it was That's like right. a yeah, yeah. It's, it's essentially like the, the alcohol thing. Yeah, it's like the apple version of of port. You know. Or you know, or any fortified wine. Yeah. Like so, yeah. I'm not. I'm not necessarily discarding the cider. But here's my my whole take on all this, which is that everything's an opportunity cost. Can I spend an afternoon sipping through forty different ciders to find two that I like, or can I spend an afternoon sipping through forty different Burgundies, of which I'll like thirty of them? Uh. <laughs> what's, a, what's a better use of my okay. limited time? Um, so I, I tend to not get as far afield with some of that weird shit as I, I maybe could, but, well, but I remain like convinced. Some, yeah. You, it just sounds like you need somebody to do some curating for you. Yeah, so I, I think that wasting your time, Adam, let's do it, man. Let's, All right. let's uh, curate it up. I'll, I'll, I'll roll up to South central. <laughs> awesome. Well, hopefully I'll be coming that way soon too. So, um, but yeah, I, Michael, I, there's so many things I would love to talk to you about, but you've really been generous with your time, and I really appreciate everything that you shared. And I'm, you know, honestly, it's a, it's a tr- it's an honor as well as a pleasure to talk with you. I mean, um, keep up all the stuff that you're doing, you know, and uh, thank you, you for doing this. You know what's awesome is like when when I first um, found out I was going to be on this podcast, I thought it was going to be just a a knockdown drag out bullshit fight about sulfites. And I'm like, all right, like, I'll, 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 yeah, I'm your Huckleberry. I'll play that fucking game. But, uh, but the, the the ability to have the conversation at a higher strategic level was so much more than I was expecting, and so much more amazing. So I like, I love the fact that we were able to do this, and and this was great. And I truly, I want to like come and hang out with you and do some drinking and like unpack some of these things. Not not on here. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And if you did, please do leave a review for the Organic Wine Podcast. It helps a lot, and we want to get the word out to as many people as we can, which your review will help do. Thanks so much.